Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Dr. Pamela Weibel. And Dr. Weibel is a family practice doc. She's in Eugene, Oregon, and she has, in addition to her clinical work, embarked on an extraordinarily necessary and unique, in some ways, unfortunately, unique challenge and a mission with her approach to bettering the care of patients in the United States and also helping to improve the practice of healthcare. She has rapidly become our foremost expert on one of the great tragedies of American medicine, and that is physician suicide. She has taken some time out to come and join us on the show and tackle this really difficult, really charged, really fraught subject. This is an episode that I've been in some ways kind of dreading uh, because this is really hard stuff to talk about, both as a physician and as someone who knows a lot of physicians and has been in the physician community for many, many years. So Pamela, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. I think it's um, it's so important that we start talking about this and bring it out of the shadows. So I really appreciate that you're you're courageous enough to take this on. So it's an interesting thing, this idea of physician suicide as a mission, as a calling, as a charge. No one had done it before, but it's not like physicians haven't been at high risk for suicide or completing the act of committing suicide for a long time. What is it that made this become something where for you, the practice of medicine wasn't quite enough that this needed to become a, a calling for you? And a, a, there was a something that drove you to take this on. Well, I was suicidal myself as a physician, and that was 100% occupationally induced back in the fall of 2004. Uh, it was primarily uh, due to great frustration around feeling trapped as a factory worker in these uh, like assembly line clinics where I was not able to be a real healer and uh, just for your audience, uh, for, just for them to know, like both my parents are physicians and I went to work with them as a child and I really saw medicine in its heyday. And that was my goal to be like a real doctor, not like a seven minute office visit, you know, pill at every ill type of a person. Right. So I had high standards for how I presumed I would be practicing medicine in the future after, you know, graduating school and getting board certified in family medicine and kind of doing everything the way I was supposed to, um, you know, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, being a good, you know, student. And in the end, I felt like I was really trapped in this dysfunctional medical system that I think most physicians feel trapped in. And that led to my own suicidal thoughts. In, in, Doing the work that you're doing, and we're going to dive into the nuts and bolts of it, but when I was looking at your website and reading about some of the statistics associated with physician suicide, I was having a really difficult time juxtaposing the numbers, juxtaposing the data, I think, in your registry of people that you've been able to keep track of events and that you have 957 physicians that have killed themselves in the United States. Connecting that number with the level of attention, the level of engagement around how at risk physicians are to 
not just have suicidal thoughts, but to be successful when they attempt suicide. It was really hard to connect that extraordinarily high number with where we are in even conceptualizing the idea of a doctor as someone who might kill themselves. Where, well, where, where does that disconnect sort of come from? Well, let me just clarify. So right now on the list, I have about 951 or so. And I would say like uh, 90% of those are US based. I do have a separate little section where because I keep hearing from people in South Africa and the UK and others. So some of those are outside of the US. And though I've gathered them all in the last five plus years, some of the cases are, you know, I have one from 1964. I mean, they're coming to me recently, right? So they're, they're coming into my awareness recently, but the cases aren't necessarily all cases, you know, that have ended in suicide in the last five years. I would say, again, the bulk of them are recent, but I, I mean, I have one from 1886 I just heard about, one from 1964, but I think the numbers just in and of itself that I've been able to, and I didn't go looking for this. These are people reaching out to me saying, hey, I want you to know my father died of suicide uh, as a surgeon, and I have never really talked about it, and yeah. I now comfortable enough to share the details of what happened around his death. And so I think it's just, this is the tip of the iceberg, even what I've collected. And I think that, as you say, right, that's a very important clarification. I appreciate you making it. And it does not ease my sense of disquiet at all. Uh, and I think it's because of what you just said that this, especially because these are being, you know, reported to you by others that doesn't make me feel like this is less of a problem or that that juxtaposition that I was referring to is any less acute. It, it, it shouldn't feel any less acute. I mean, we've known about these high rates of suicide for physicians since 1858 in England when it was first reported. And in the um, you know ensuing 160 years, sadly, our own medical institutions have done very little to nothing to address the core reasons for these suicides. I mean, people don't even really understand. I understand because I've been on the phone with thousands of suicidal doctors, but I think in general, even the understanding among medical professionals is, is lacking as to why this is happening. So we're in the like baby stages of been understanding this as a culture. So I want to pick up from right there, that idea that we are in the baby stages. That was sort of my perception around this as well. And it's good that we're in that first stage, right? We're going to hopefully be able to experience some rapid evolution. I'm, I'm curious of your insight around this because you speak to groups all around the country, physician and non-physician alike. What is the sense of understanding from people who are not doctors around the issue of the physician as someone who is at a high risk of committing suicide and the rates at which physicians kill themselves? They have zero understanding and they're actually like completely shocked when they first hear of this. Like yeah. I, I have a number of times it's primarily happened quite a lot in cab rides or Uber rides where they're like, Oh, you're coming to San Diego. Is this for business or pleasure? And when I say physician suicide, they're like, what? You know, they just have no idea because they have in their mind, the American dream image, right? Of the big house, big car, your life is great sort of thing. And when you say this, it shocks them for the first like two, three minutes and they've never heard about it before. Then like four or five minutes into the cab ride, they'll be like, you know, I can really understand why that's happening. They see tough stuff all day long. Gee, I never really thought about it. Right. So that's usually the reaction. So then from that, when you have those conversations, where do they go from there? Is there sort of 
an engagement around it? Like, wow, that this is an interesting okay. realization or is it? Uh, it's, it's great. The cab ride gets better and better from there. Um, sometimes I, I say things like, Hey, like how long do you think doctors, um, you know, work on their shifts in the hospital? And they'll be like, ah, maybe like 12 hours or, you know, I'm like, no. And, I, and I'll see, I'll say more and they'll, they'll keep guessing and I'll have them sort of guess like a multiple choice test or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and then they get to like 16, 18 hours and then they'll start saying things like, I'm not allowed to drive this Uber after 12 hours or like I'm limited in the number of hours I can, you know, do this, that or the other thing in my jobs. And, you know, they're absolutely shocked when we get to like 28 hours is the limit with ACGME for new doctors, right? They're, They're like, they're, they're out of their minds. They can't believe it. They, they're wondering like where the legal protection is. And that's exactly what I'm wondering. Where is the legal protection? Why are we somehow like different from everyone else on the planet and our physiologic needs and our legal, you know, we're, we're not legally protected. So this kind of gets to what I think is a really important place with this is this issue of why are physicians at such a high risk of committing suicide? Because there are things that are very unique to the work that we do. And in the work that you've been doing, studying this and learning about it, and most importantly, bringing it forward into the public discourse. And that's a huge part of why this podcast exists. Why I started it was to find important issues like this, where there is a big gulf, a big space between public understanding and the reality of what happens in the world of medicine on any number of subjects, physician suicide being one of them. What are the drivers of this when you, in the work that you've done and what you've learned, what would you say are the things that are putting physicians at such high risk? Well, I think we're basically compassionate, highly intelligent, existential thinkers by nature. Uh, many of us, um, some of us are less existential than others in our thinking, but you know, we're deep people, you know, we're not sort of surface dwellers. And so I think, um, you know, we, we take life on hard, right? We feel things, we see things that most people don't see. Um, you know, we're carrying around quite honestly, the pain and suffering of all of humanity in our bodies through our senses. We've seen, tasted, smelled, you know, what it's like to be, you know, in an OR and have somebody die, you know, like we we're there, we've got the blood on our shoe. Uh, you know, we've told the parents, you know, their child has died in a car accident or whatever it is, you know, we're the ones that are on the receiving end of all those tears and screams and wails, the wailing parents and uh, the last breath of the child. And, you know, and so like, I don't think we quite understand the impact this actually has on you to hold that suffering in your body without release, without debriefing, without therapy, you know, for the rest of your life. You know, you're, you're going to still hear some of these parents screaming when their child died, potentially the rest of your life. You have this visceral memory of these experiences. So number one is like, we're sensitive, loving, compassionate, highly intelligent people. And we're in situations where we are in traumatic, you know, we have like sort of PTSD from our work. Okay. And then we're in an impossible scenario where, you know, we're blamed if anything goes wrong, we're at the top of the, you know, the food chain there, you know, if something goes wrong, it's not necessarily the nurse's fault or the tech's fault. I mean, it comes back to the doctor and it comes back to your malpractice carrier. And, you know, there's just a lot of pressure on physicians and there's no release valve and there's no like emotional health care, a psychological support, uh, let alone, I don't even think we have enough infrastructure to really support physicians in our daily work, you know, but um, we definitely don't have the emotional support we need. 
So this takes a toll on your life over time. It will destroy your marriage and your relationship with your kids and other, your personal life. It will, it will undermine your life. As you were listing those things that physicians are all exposed to, every single one that you said, my heart rate would jump because I rem- the memory would come back from whether it was medical school or residency or my current clinical work. You know, it's, it's every day you do see those things and we all do carry those. What is the role though, too, of physicians being in a place, right? We, we know that the, the practice has changed. I feel like there, there've got to be other variables, things that are more around the way the profession is carried out, you know, the way we have to interact with technology, the way that we don't maybe have as much personal interaction as we used to, the way we have to carry so many physicians carrying excessive amounts of student debt uh, with no really good way for, is there, a, is there sort of a milieu around those things that you listed as well? Or are those, those, those pieces really the, the, the cornerstones? Well, I think some of those pieces like hit pretty hard on the psyche, but uh, what allows us to continue, at least in the past, when I've interviewed doctors, like in the 1950s, it's like, okay, they were all really busy. They, 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 they loved their jobs and they loved their community. And even though they were really busy, they had time to sit in the doctor's lounge and they had time with each other. And there wasn't like this incessant pressure and all this third party intrusion into the work that we do to the point where there are fewer and fewer moments of joy and real connection and more and more like to-do lists and feeling like you're never meeting the goals, right? At the end of the day. So, and this just has to do with, I think uh, so many third parties are um, profiteering off of us at every turn and the culture of distrust that's grown up around our fractured relationships with our patients. You know, the solution of the third parties is to insert more third parties into the fractures between the relationship instead of get out of the way and allow the patient and the physician to bond again. What happens if we don't address this in a meaningful way? Do we see, do you foresee a a worsening? Do you foresee a leveling? Do you foresee a change? What will happen in terms of understanding and improving and prevention without meaningful action now? Are we at the beginning of something or are we at the end of something? Oh, we're at the beginning of something. Yes, at the beginning of something. And the problem is that let's just look at this as a soap note, okay? You know, like (laughs) so for for the non-medical listeners, right? The soap note—that's the standard acronym that we use for the daily progress note that is written. So that's the subjective, that's the objective, the exam and the vitals, the assessment, the what's happening, and the plan. What are we going to do about it? The soap note. Every everyone that went to medical school, we all were so excited to learn how to write a soap note for the first time. But, but, you know, that's crucial in, in delivering great care to the patient is you have to have those four, four elements that's correct. Right. That's right. You know, so, uh, you know, subjective, there's a lot of doctors walking around looking not so happy and you're sort of not sure, you know, who might go next uh, because there's probably been suicides in every medical institution around the country. As some of them are more well hidden than others. You know, objective, okay, like uh, there's a body bag on the ground there or, you know, somebody just stepped off the hospital. I mean, that's like objectively happening, but it's being covered up so that people can't find out about it and the media doesn't even really cover it. I mean, when you Google some of these names that are coming to me from family members that are sharing, you know, my husband just died of suicide. You know, I can't even necessarily find any articles like 
in the news at all. And it was like, some of these cases are public, right? I mean, they happened in public, they happened at hospitals, they were found dead in a call room sort of thing. So assessment, you know, is, uh, you know, physician suicide, doctor suicides, this, this is a real epidemic, a real crisis. So the problem is, when you talk about action, we can't really come up with an action plan if we're in this state of denial um, of sort of not being willing to say suicide out loud. You know, every day when doctors and medical students, by the way, aren't being tracked at all, uh, you know, no, nobody's really tracking the deaths of these medical students. Um, and when they die by suicide, sometimes the the medical student, their classmates will get a email like autoresponder that'll say, hey, uh, we've had a tragic loss or so-and-so has died in his, his sleep. And, you know, still even the classmates are not given the the truth of why their own a uh, fellow doctor in training has not showed up for work. Like, uh, you know, so, I mean, we're using euphemisms. We can't, as a culture, as a medical culture, and generally, you know, the culture at large, we're not still able to say doctor suicide out loud without cowering. Why? So why is that? Why is that? Well, yeah. of course, I mean, I have my own hypotheses, right? I can list off a bunch of reasons, but I'm, I'm going to, I'll put, I'll, I'll pin the question to you and then I'll kind of throw in my two cents. But what, why? Why? I, I think there's a level of denial. There's a level of sort of not wanting to deal with it. I, I think like it brings up a lot of pain, of unprocessed grief for many physicians. I, I think most physicians have probably lost somebody in medicine to suicide or know of somebody, you know, so people somehow would rather put blinders on and just kind of keep going than really feel the pain of their friend having died, you know, and then the public you know, because I'm looking at this in both ways, there's denial on the part of the phys uh, the medical institutions and some physicians. And then the general public, you know, it's it's scary. Suicide is scary. Um, doctor suicide is scarier than suicide because these are the people that they go to for help. How is it going to make a person in the public feel if, if, if they think that the doctor themselves might be... Um, you know, getting ready to die when they're going in to need surgery, you know, so it's a destabilizing conversation. And so but avoiding it is certainly not going to help, right? I would add to that, that I think it has been such a part of the culture that it's kind of recognized as almost like the cost of doing business. And I don't mean to sound callous, but I remember feeling that way that when we would talk about medical school rates of attrition, people dropping out, things like that, that, you know, look, not everyone that you start your medical school class with in your first year is going to graduate because some people decide it's not for them and some people move on and some people, what you know, life happens, but that suicide was just sort of part of that. And not that that's something that we should be doing everything possible to try to recognize early and do everything to prevent. It was just kind of factored in. Um, and I remember that being part of like the pop culture that I would see growing up on TV shows. It was just, it was, it was part of everything. It wasn't, it wasn't something to sort of say, wait a minute, why are we factoring this in as being the same as not getting good grades and having to drop out for academic reasons or deciding that medicine's not for you and you decide that you want to go do something different? Why is killing yourself being regarded as the same category of, 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 opting out for lack of a better term. And I just, I remember feeling like that just doesn't seem right that it, there's an inevitability to it. That just seems totally wrong and totally callous. Yeah, totally. It is. It is absolutely callous. Yeah. 
like the whole idea that, oh, some people aren't going to make it. Oh, yeah. well. It was just part of that same package of not everyone is going to graduate. Not everyone's going to finish residency. And one of the reasons is because they're going to kill themselves. Why is that the same as not wanting to just practice medicine or realizing that it's not for you or wanting to do something else? Why is Why are these being packaged as the same thing? Yeah, I guess it's kind of the our way or the highway, either you're with us or you're not, you know, and if you're on the team, then, you know, you're, this, this, the whole thing, it's crazy to me, but, you know, once you step off the building, you're covered by a tarp outside the hospital. It's like, uh, there's sort of like no use for you. You've stopped generating revenue for us. Um, all right. I always Next. felt like it was the, it was more the, you can't hack it that you're not, you, you just weren't tough enough that there was, I never had someone say that out loud. I I want to be very clear. Like that was never spoken, but it just in part of the alpha dog nature of medical training and being in medicine, it it kind of went unspoken, but that there, there was sort of an implicit, like you just couldn't hack it in a way, which I think is totally wrong headed way to think about physicians being at risk of killing themselves. I just remember feeling like that was the perception of those when there was a story about a physician who killed themselves, that that was part of it. Oh yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I address that. I have this physician suicide letters book. Uh, and I, after reviewing all these letters that I've received from suicidal physicians, um, I tried to organize them into sections that seem to have common themes. And there, there is this section of suck it up, you know, yeah. sort of like get over it. Um, and I don't think that's the way we relate to people with cancer, high blood pressure, diabetes, suck it up, you know, see what you can do. You know what I mean? It's like a completely callous way to react to anyone who has a health need. Or but, I, or- but I want to circle back to what you were saying earlier, because we do that in medicine on the regular. We do suck it up. We have something horrifying happen. We break terrible, destructive news to a family, and we are part of the grieving process in that quiet room and we're holding hands and we might be crying too. And then we leave that room and we immediately go back to work. We don't stop. So we do suck it up. That is part of the culture of being a physician is that you finish a case, case goes well, medium or poorly. Your next case is about to start. You need to go and, and get a glass of water and scrub for your next case. That's just the rhythm of medicine. That may not be right, but we are steeped in the idea of suck it up and move on because there's somebody else that needs the skills, the insight and the energy that we are trained to provide and want to provide. And that's great. And it can't happen without taking a toll on your own life at a certain interval, you know, and I think to me is that these retreats that I lead with physicians, sometimes um, a physician, this really blew me away, will be there. You know, we're out in the woods, no call, no internet service. I mean, they can't get interrupted. And I think for the first time, they're sitting alone with their peers in a place where they feel relatively safe, you know, and they don't have work to do. And the medical board isn't there overhearing what's happening. So this one woman started crying. And I was trying to figure out why she was crying, because really nothing that anyone said seemed to have provoked her. But I was trying to figure out like what was going on. And she just had spontaneously started crying about um, a miscarriage that she had witnessed like 30 years before. Okay. And I was like, what? And I, I and she wanted to tell the story of the, of the patient and the case. And it just was like, I'm thinking, and then she apologized for crying. She's like, well, I'm so sorry, but I'm actually very happy that I was able to cry because I haven't been able to cry for like five years. 
Okay, so, so what the end result of us seeing all this human suffering and pain is that um, we can become numb. We might not be able to cry at a certain point. And you might actually, in a moment of silence and safety, start remembering cases from 20 or 30 years ago that were very traumatic that you've not processed yet. So that's a lot. That's a big burden to ask somebody to carry. I feel like you and I could probably very quickly go down the rabbit hole of ping-ponging stories of real sadness and tragedy. But I think that if we kind of circle back to what you were identifying as the major underpinnings of the problem, would you then be able to say that perhaps a foothold of a solution is to help physicians learn that part of the profession is dealing with tragedy, is dealing with grief, is seeing people at their most vulnerable and learning different ways, recognizing that, but then learning different ways, strategies and ideas to cope with it because it is part of the job. It's not going to go away, but then if we can articulate different ways that we can process what we're seeing, experiencing, helping people through that it, it will be of benefit to us. Is that a place where we can get a foothold in this problem? Oh, absolutely. We need to be having like at intervals debriefing or some sort of ways for people to be in real time discussing the recent traumatic things that they've witnessed at work, you know, outside of patient, you know, the patients are all tucked in, everything's calm, you know, hopefully at the end of a shift or something or once a week or whatever, there's a debriefing period that's just sort of built into your work schedule or whatever, you know, so that you have time to sit and say, hey, that was really tough when Mrs. Jones died or, or whatever. I mean, the equivalent to this, by the way, I sometimes use the analogy of like mental health and dental health, you know, with dental health, we are all on a maintenance plan. We are flossing and brushing at intervals and being seen by a dentist like every six months, right? I mean, and if you're not doing that, you can expect your teeth to rot out of your mouth, especially if you're in a high risk situation where you're eating candy all day. So like physicians are in a high risk mental health situation. And what sort of maintenance program are we on? Right now we're on nothing pretty much. Okay. So you can expect your brain to start rotting. Okay. If I'm going to use the dental analogy and I, I, I think the equivalent of flossing and brushing. All right. And at intervals checking in right with our mental health, if we're in a high risk profession, the equivalent of eating sweets all day to your teeth. All right. Are these sorts of things, are they being piloted? Are they being kind of tested? I mean, it's a, it's a great hypothesis. Have have you been able to, in the work that you're doing, you're still, it feels like almost in the unearthing and discovery part of all of this, but in terms of moving into like looking for solutions, have things like this been piloted? What sort of balloons have gone up to see if they can fly? Well, I think things like this have been piloted like with police and firefighters, uh-huh. which are sort of ahead of us on debriefing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, School shootings where you have institutions that have lost, you know, one or more students, they have uh, things that are, I mean, we haven't figured out what to do about gun craziness, but, you know, they have figured out how to deal with the actual grieving process at their schools, you know, and so it's like, why don't we learn outside of industry from some of the other very brave men and women who are in various other professions and institutions who have gone ahead of us in these areas? If you could think of other ways, other places to get a foothold, right? I mean, you're as steeped in this as anyone probably ever has been. What would you like to sort of see as the places where, from any perspective, from the perspective of society, from the perspective of a hospital, a medical group, individual physicians, physicians, families, I mean, you name it, 
what would be kind of your wish list of the places that we can start, right? You, you said earlier, we're at the beginning of something, not at the end of something. So in order to get to the end as quickly as possible on the right road, what would be the ways you'd like to map that out? Well, I think there's some things that we could do quite easily now without necessarily spending a lot of money or even hiring new people. And I thought about this and it was really driven home to me when a chaplain called me out of the blue from a hospital, you know, really devastated by the physician's suicide crisis, wanted to know how to help. And, you know, what I thought would be kind of a no brainer, especially in um, high risk departments like the emergency department, surgeons, uh, surgery, you know, is to maybe in every hospital, there's probably a broom closet that's not being used, you know, like clean it out, put a couch in there, put a little, you know, dorm fridge and a a nice little lamp or something and some lavender spray and just have a room where physicians can go to take a breath between cases if they've just had to tell somebody their baby died. You know, I mean, if you have the luxury of three to five minutes between a case and you can sit down somewhere and cry, right now physicians are sneaking into the bathroom and stairwells and into their cars in the parking lot to cry because they don't feel safe to cry in the hospital. I think we need to say this is sort of like a safe room for doctors or maybe even nurses, you know, to go in between cases and just take a breath. And there could be like a call button in there. And guess what? You could call the chaplain who could come listen to you. I know you're used to calling the chaplain to deal with families, but you know, the chaplain already works in the hospital. The chaplain wants to help the physicians. We don't have the infrastructure sort of set up to allow us to have a place to go without, I know lots of residents are sneaking uh, like food from the refrigerator, little crackers and apple juices that are like the patient's food. Like there's gotta be a place where we can go to get like a little bit of calories, a little bit of downtime, a Kleenex box, you know, we're not having to hide in the hallway stairwell, you know, to cry. As you know what I mean? I do. As you're saying that, I'm remembering the last time I cried at work. It was several years okay. ago. And I remember I walked outside the building and I hid behind a hedge. And yeah. um, I, you know, I don't want to tell the story because I'm, I'm choking up right now just thinking about the story that prompted it. It was just one of the great tragedies I've ever had to be a part of. Um, and I remember I was like, no one's going to see me cry. I'm going to go. I know where I'll go. And I'll go behind this hedge and I'll cry for a while and then I'll come back in. But by God, no one's going to see it. Okay. So that's a little bit part of the problem. <laughs> right. I know. That's why I'm telling you. Like, that's, you know, that's still where we are that I like. These are my, the nurses and the other docs, they're my friends or my colleagues and they're not going to see me cry. Uh huh. And they're also probably hiding, crying somewhere else too. I have a feeling that hedge was well traveled. I, re I really do. It was right outside the door and it's around the corner. So it wasn't visible. There's no way I was the first person that thought of it. Right. And I right. think that's why that picture of that emergency physician went viral. Was it a year or two ago right. where, you know, he's outside on the street, right in front of the hospital. The picture's taken from a distance. He's crouching down. He's got his white coat on and he's, he's obviously mm -hmm. crying, man, that picture made the rounds. And yeah. there was something about that vulnerability and, even the distance that the photo was taken from that he was still somehow unapproachable. Uh, right. It was really, really profound. And it was, it, it was really intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm just, all I'm trying to say is we can come out of the shadows and yeah. we don't have to hide our humanity anymore. I mean, medicine is about embracing humanity and healing uh, people from their suffering and, and, and we're people too. And, right. Oh, there needs to just be a recognition that doctors are people and we suffer and we suffer vicariously through your suffering. And so we need to just kind of have a safe place 
a safe zone for suffering where everyone has a chance to kind of be at their best and um, to call for help. Everyone in a hospital should have a call button. You know, a doctor shouldn't have to go to the roof and think, should I jump as their option? They mm -hmm. should have a call button to call somebody to help them. There's a chaplain that's probably there that would help if if we kind of set this thing up right. What would, happen, what would happen if an organization, as part of its physician retention and recruiting process, said that they had that, we have a wellness room. It's not a call room. You know, it's not where you go where you're on call. It's a physician only or a nurse only or whomever only, and that's your space, like a wellness room. What would, what would be the impact of that? It would be great. And people would have to start using, I mean, you'd have to sort of, people are afraid to sort of necessarily be the first one to do yeah. something. Yeah. Normalize it. You know what I mean? Like normalize and not snickering in the hallway. This one went in there and, you know, kind of like watching somebody go to therapy who's really going into, you know, the psychologist's office, you know, yeah. but, yeah. you know, normalize that like even uh, sort of the tough guy in the ER you know, goes in and out of the room and, you know, just it's, it's, yeah, that we're human. I mean, if this is, a, it's really actually very simple. Like, let's just be, let's just be human and, and we can all do this. And it's really not that hard. And, you know, that's the other thing about this, uh, solving physician suicide. It's not going to take, you know, like a $3 million NIH grant to try to just <laughs> for some sort of like obscure virus or something, you right, know, like right, right. Actually, the cure for this is actually just, like talking about it on a podcast, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's not that hard. No, we're not going to need, we're not going to need uh, an extraordinarily expensive intervention to do this. I think you're right. You can also argue, I'm sort of thinking this through, right? What would happen with this idea of like a physician wellness room? I, I like that idea. You can also kind of make the, the assertion that it's not just the right thing to do for your medical staff, but it's a good strategic decision because the places that do things like that now are going to be on the leading edge of that work. And it would make them potentially much more attractive places to start a career and continue a career where you know that that sort of awareness and uh, proactivity is part of the culture. Right, exactly. And and what, what, what is the cost of doing something like this? It's sure. like almost zero, right? Okay, maybe you need another part-time chaplain or something. I mean, you know, come on. You need an extra few little a dorm fridge. I mean, what is the cost of this? Nothing, really. It's fun because you can see when I think about sort of the 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 arc of this show and and the way the different conversations have gone. I've been doing this show now for about three years, and the puzzle pieces are really fitting together. When you look at the show, it's a really eclectic mixture of guests, but the connective tissue after having this many episodes is really starting to fit together. Right, conversations around team based culture, conversations around orientation, mentoring, and coaching. This fits right in with that sort of milieu. Is your culture one where we can be accountable for mistakes? We can, you know, help each other prevent mistakes. We can mentor each other properly. We can support each other when times are difficult. We can get through disasters together or not. Uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to sort of see how this can fit in with that, but that also trying to tackle it in a vacuum is extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. And by the way, with suicide, it's one of those things that has to be prevented. You know what I mean? There, yeah. there's sort of, there's no, um, it, the further and further you go late stage is not a good time to try to, you know, talking people off the ledge when they've already got one foot off the building is sort of not the time to intervene. 
I mean, we can try, but it's less successful. Why not put the wellness rooms in? Why not create a culture on day one of medical school where like the dean stands up and says, you know what? You guys have jumped through a lot of hoops to get here. You're the best of the best. We're family now. Call me anytime. Here's my cell number. You know what I mean? Like really, instead of scaring people to learn, I think we've already proven like we want to learn. We're not slackers by nature. (laughs) Right, right. Medical school. So at what point can they sort of stop teaching by terror and intimidation and start embracing basically gifted, sensitive, existential thinkers who want to be here for the right reasons? Okay, there's always bad eggs. One percent everywhere, you know, might have like whatever, you know, might not be there for the right reason. But, you know, 99 percent of us are here because we want to learn and we want to do a good job. And um, I just don't think there's any room for, you know, this this malignant sort of pimping and teaching by terror. And, you know, that that just terrifies people. That doesn't that's not I don't think you want to teach people to be afraid. So as you said, right, this is a, a, a huge project. We're just starting out of it. You've obviously already shouldered a very, very heavy load. What does the road look like for you? What, how are you carrying your work forward right now? Because obviously this is something that you are as heavily steeped in as anyone probably ever has been before. Well, I, I actually love doing this work. I love talking to physicians who are suffering. Like, um, I happen to have set up my life in such a way in a sweet, you know, Eugene, Oregon, a, a very calm peaceful city. I feel, uh, I feel uh, very resourced to be able to do what I'm doing. However, as this film comes out, I think you're aware the do no harm film is debuting soon. Uh, are you familiar with the film? I am. And I'm glad you're going to plug it. How would people find it? Um, so if they go to do no harm film.com, they can watch the movie trailer and then also find out what's happening. You know, I think it's going to premiere in uh, September in New York city. The reason why I'm bringing this up, it's not my film. It's a two-time Emmy-winning filmmaker who called me up, cold called me the fall of 2014, wanted to interview me and have me sort of feed her uh, some families to interview. And so through me and the networks that I had created in this conversation, she was able to create this amazing documentary following families who've lost their loved ones to suicide uh, over a period of like three to four years. So it's a riveting film. It's great. It really, it can teach uh, the general population Population in a way that like one-on-one conversations with me just can't do it any longer, you know? So I'm happy that the megaphone uh, that's being attached to me is getting larger and larger and going into, you know, bigger media outlets and into motion pictures because I still want to continue to do the suicide hotline for physicians that I run, but uh, obviously I need more help. I need more people to be talking about this, sharing their stories. I really need more male physicians to step forward and be vulnerable and share their moments of despair with the world. Um, For whatever reason, like men are a little bit late to the game with sharing some of their more vulnerable um, you know, moments in medicine, I, I think just because Western culture trains men to keep a lid on it and be the tough guy, you know, but I think once we can get over that, it'll be amazing. What do you think? I, I think that that's the right work. Absolutely. And if people want to see the work that you're doing directly, what is the website they would go to? Um, so I'm at idealmedicalcare.org and I have a blog there. And then, like I said, the film trailers, do no harm film.com. And I return every single email, every single phone call myself. I don't have staff, you know, so if anyone needs to reach out, please let me know I'm here and uh, do not suffer in silence. We do not want to lose any more of our brothers and sisters in medicine to suicide. 
or to a lifetime of despair and um, don't withdraw, reach out for help. And for the other physicians out there and nurses and, and health professionals, even patients, if you see um, somebody who's struggling in healthcare, like, like just reach out to them, give them a hug, give them uh, a note of appreciation, tell them just, I think we need just more moments of appreciation. Thank your doctor for the conversation they had with you or for, you know, I mean, I, I just think we need to to bond and be in a relationship with one another. And that's something that's missing. Like you, like you had mentioned earlier, because of all the third party, all the busyness, all the uh, electronic medical records, all the eyes on the computer. I think we really need real human contact. That's what's missing. It's extraordinary work that you're doing. And it's going to be really interesting to follow the impact that it has. Hopefully it's widespread and fast. Because as you said, it feels like we're at the beginning of something and that something is not good. And so I'm really grateful that you came on the show to talk about it. I think that we're going to be able to get more of this into the attention of people that maybe don't even know it exists and also people who can be influential in the same way that you have to try to move the needle in the right direction. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. And and one final word is that... um, when you hear or see the truth, it's really, really hard to unhear or unsee it. And so I think that's the value of, say, this documentary is once people can see in, you know, audiovisual fashion what's really going on and the fact that we are really all at risk when we don't deal with this head on, uh, we are going to have um, a, a huge change in the culture of medicine. And it's going to happen probably in the next six to 12 months. Well, thanks so much again for coming on the show and, and sharing all of this with us. And we will we will be following along and hopefully things do move in the direction that we all need it to move. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.